0: following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, I want to welcome you this evening to Fellowship Bible Church. Good evening. Glad that you are able to join us and participate in the service this evening. Let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah, please. Chapter 36. We come now to a historical interlude, as it's called, in the outline of Isaiah. And we have Sennacherib here and the incident there with Sennacherib, Isaiah, and Hezekiah that takes us through chapter 39 and then begins uh, verse or chapter 40, rather, the book of comfort, the second half, although it's not half, we know, but the second section of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 36, however, is our reading material for this evening, and it says this, now, it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the rab Shekha with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household... Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say, You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, and which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Notice how that, to me, that parallels a lot of things that happen today. People say, uh, you know, well, isn't Christianity really about this? when it's not anything about that at all. And then they criticize it on the basis of a false view of what it is. And here, the, uh, the, uh, ex- the foreigners are saying, look, Hezekiah took away all these altars. No, in fact, doing that pleased God. It didn't displease God. So he has a complete misunderstanding of the circumstances of the situation. Now, verse eight says, "'Now therefore I urge you, "'give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, "'and I will give you 2,000 horses.' If you're able on your part to put riders on them, how then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew, in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, "'As my master sent me to your master and to you uh, to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you?' Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, "'Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, "'Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord.' saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present, and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine, and every one of you from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters from his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, they have, delivered Samaria from, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they held their peace, and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Well, that's how it was, and we'll see as we read on how the Lord delivered. All right, we're going to invite the young people to go upstairs to their class. Some of these guys are wearing their winter coats. It got cold out there again. They're a little different than, uh, than recent days. Well, it's supposed to be a little nicer tomorrow and then a little nicer yet, I think, Tuesday, temperature wise, but then the bottom will drop out again. But uh, it's not its not anything to worry about. Spring is here, and it's nothing like uh, those cold weeks in February. Yeah, we hopefully won't go back to those temperatures for a little while yet. All right, we're going to turn our Bibles then to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And and as you're on your way there, let me just address a couple of uh, issues that remain from this morning's time together in the Word. I had one question that came up regarding the morning message, uh, the 1045 service, regarding the uh, present reign of Christ or not. And as we said, uh, Christ is not now reigning as he sits at the right hand of God. Of course, he is as God, sovereign over the universe. I, I didn't probably make that as clear as I could have uh, this morning. He does reign as God over all things in the, in the matter of his omnipotence and his sovereign rule. His throne is established in the heavens. But he's not reigning in the sense that the, we talk about when we talk about the millennial kingdom, when he will, in direct open rule on the face of the earth. He will be the emperor. He will be the the ultimate Caesar. He will be the king of kings on the earth. And that is not happening right now. He is not reigning over the Davidic throne or having a hidden reign over the people of God in heaven. Um, and somebody asked me the question on an email this afternoon, what about progressive dispensationalism? And that That is an issue that distinguishes our view of the scriptures from a progressive dispensational view, Uh, not universally, but nearly so. Progressive dispensationalists would say Christ is reigning right now from his throne at the right hand of God, reigning over this kind of already form of the kingdom, but it's not yet, the already but not yet distinction that they try to maintain and so that is, that is a distinctive view typically of progressive dispensationalism. There are other aspects of that view that we object to as well, or at least I do, um, particularly their view of complementary hermeneutics, which just to give you an example or a kind of a generic example, they would say a promise in the Old Testament has a certain meaning, but that meaning can be expanded or given a fuller sense, a census plenior, a fuller sense, than what it has. And so the meaning is expanded or uh, it's, it's adapted by expansion, never by contraction, never by change, but it's adapted by addition. And uh, that addition can include things that were nowhere near the mind of the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe they would say the Holy Spirit, yes, but not the author of the Old Testament prophecy. So for instance, God made a promise to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. But what the prophet didn't know, progressive dispensationalists say, is that actually that promise was gonna be expanded to include the church later on. And that does in fact change the meaning of the, of the prophecy, although it doesn't abrogate any part of it, it adds to it. So uh, we could go on in, in that and spend a little more time there, but we won't this evening. Uh, The other matter that we left behind this morning had to do with 1 Corinthians 15, around verses 33 and 34. This is from the early service today. And let me just address that issue uh, now, because I didn't really finish satisfactorily that, that segment. We ran out of time. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, "...do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits." Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So Paul gives the church a general statement of this, what, we, what we've kind of come to use as a proverb, a general proverb. You know, evil company corrupts good manners, or it's the King James, I think, or evil company corrupts good habits. Evil company corrupts good people. Uh, And that's true. It's become popular to use outside of this context, kind of as I indicated this morning, it's lifted out of the context and disconnected from it. And in this case, it works pretty well that way. It reminds us that the company we keep will rub off on us. I know you've found that to be the case over the years of your life. This is not just true for middle schoolers and high schoolers, by the way. This is true for all of us. Uh, you, you know as, as old as you get if you spend a lot of time with people and you pal up with them then you will be influenced by constant closeness and companionship to these folks well into our adult years and it might work at first imperceptibly but over the course of time there will be a change evident and it can easily be seen but the context if we if we take that proverb and we kind of put it back in its context and fit it in like the puzzle piece that it is in these verses and see the whole picture, the context makes the proverb even more pointed. What Paul means is that there are evil people in the church that do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. They're the ones that are the evil company, and they are the ones who corrupt the good habits or the good manners or the good morals of the people in the church, they're bringing corruption. Evil company brings corruption to its location just as sure as the sun rises and sets every day. It's axiomatic. That's what we mean when we say this is a proverb. It's a general truth. The hope of the resurrection is a sanctifying, godly hope. But when you have people in the church that are saying, "Now, there's no such thing as that. You know, that's, that's for simpletons or that's, that's imaginary theology or, you know, it's, it's just not true, it's not scientific and so on. They are corrupting the church and, and causing it, in effect, as Paul said in verse 32, to hold the philosophy, look, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no real reason for you to live for holiness if you're not going to be resurrected, if you're just going to die. Why bother? Why bother? So it just makes mincemeat of Christian theology to say no resurrection, as we've argued, but this will corrupt good habits. And so what he's saying is it's not cool to have these people in your church, like to be so inclusive that you include people who destroy who you are. Yeah, I mean, uh, we could say inclusivity is good in a way, but where the world takes inclusivity is to mean we need to be inclusive of all views, even if they're destructive views, even if they're harmful, even if they're sinful views. And as a private um, grouping of people, for instance, in this church, we do not have to be inclusive of things that are destructive to ourselves. And the the Apostle Paul says uh, you, you must not be deceived about this. In fact, those people in the church needed to wake up to righteousness. That's what he means when he says awake to righteousness. In other words, wake up to the reality that you have sin in the camp, you have sin in the midst of your church, you have sin that is uh, leavening the whole body, you need to take care of it. Uh, so they're gonna, these people are bringing nothing but problems in the church. They're going to sow discord. They're gonna cause division. They're gonna teach false ideas. They're gonna corrupt the young people. They're gonna discourage the saints. I mean, can you imagine uh, some of the older folks in the church when they hear these young upstarts in the church saying there's no resurrection. And uh, some of them maybe just shook their head and said, this is nonsense. Others of them began to wonder, what have I been believing? Am I gonna be all right when I die? I, is there actually going to be a resurrection? So they discourage the saints, these false teachers do, and, and so on. All kinds of division and everything. And Paul's saying, look, they've got to go. They have to, they have to leave. It's unacceptable to tolerate the no resurrection doctrine in the church. Look, what I, what I tell folks is if you want to have that kind of church, believe in, well, the things that we believe, You know, say, for instance, a simpler matter, Of baptism. We believe in baptism by immersion for believers only. If you believe in baptism by sprinkling for babies, then you're welcome to go find a church that agrees with you, but that's not here. You believe in no resurrection? This is not the church for you. And just put it out there and don't come and think you're going to try to change the church because it's going to be, it's not going to be acceptable, okay? And so that's the blessing of having freedom, my friends, that you can choose to go to another place if you want to. But we ask you simply this. Be kind enough to leave us alone so that we can hold our beliefs the way we see fit from Scripture. Be kind and don't be you know, a busybody in our matters. Uh, just leave us alone, as it were. We leave you alone. You go and do that. Now, we, we may challenge you and be ready for that challenge, But after a while, even us, you know, even we, when when somebody says, look, I don't believe that, I'm not going to believe that, we'll just say, look, okay, go ahead, fine, that's your choice. We're not going to, you know, exercise some kind of authority over you to say, well, you know, we'll do God's service and take your life or something because you believe false theology. No, God will take care of that. God will take care of that. And you know what? If we're wrong, God will take care of us too. That's correct. we're not. (laughs) But anyway, the church had to wake up. They had problems there. Of course, we know they had many problems amongst uh, them, these, this very pernicious false doctrine. So uh, they had sin in the church. And uh, notice what he says. Some do not have the knowledge of God. Let me translate that for you. Some of you people aren't saved. Some of you people are not true born again Christians. You are not believers. And, And if that offends you, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Because you need to be told that you don't know God. That's what it means to not have the knowledge of God. And Paul says to the whole church, I speak this to your shame. There are a number of people in the midst of the Corinthian church that simply do not know God, and they're kind of mixed in like wheat and tares, like tares with the wheat, and you're not recognizing that as a church, and you need to recognize that, that people who deny the resurrection, they really, there's one way that we address those folks, that is evangelism. We preach the gospel to them because they need it. They need to be saved. So it's a shameful thing to allow that bad influence to continue to be felt in the church. Just like 1 Corinthians 15, it was shameful for them to continue to allow this man who was involved in immorality to be there in the church. They were told to remove him, and uh, they were supposed to do that in order to purify the church. So there was something very seriously wrong with the Corinthians' uh, calculation of what it meant to be a good church. They did not understand right and wrong very carefully. They did not have their senses discerned to good and evil. And that was a serious, very serious problem. Now, Paul goes on, and uh, we get to Resurrection now, Part 7. The Resurrection, Part 7, in verse 35. And. He carries on with uh, the problems in the church there with regard to this doctrine of resurrection. And I want to mention one thing here just that I put in my notes that some time ago and I thought it would be appropriate to mention here. As far as dealing with problems in the church, you know how Paul dealt with problems in the church? You know, did he tiptoe around them? No, he dealt with them head-on, directly, there's a problem, this is the problem, this is how you fix it. You've got some people in the church that don't know Christ. That needs to be fixed. People don't like this direct approach. And when it's given or when it's expressed with confidence, when it's expressed with authority, uh, when it's expressed with conviction, it, it rubs people the wrong way. But so be it. It needs to be expressed. And so Paul gives us an example and I think one of the benefits of this direct approach is it catches people up short and, and helps them to understand what the problem is. You know how many times you can kind of talk around the problem, like I say, tiptoe around it, and the person on the receiving end doesn't get it? No, give it to them straight, let them understand the problem that way, and if they get mad, so be it, but they need to deal with it, and it's, and for the Corinthian church, it's essential. It's it's absolutely needful that they deal with these problems in the church. And so I commend to you clear, direct communication because it's the most, most truthful and it's the most helpful to the people that you're speaking with. Now, we have here another, another denial of the resurrection. Did you know that? Look at verse 35. But someone will say... Now, let me read this two different ways, and let's see if I can do this successfully here. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Or read it this way, which I think is the more correct way to read it. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? It's a cynical or sarcastic rhetorical question, okay? Now, Paul has has used questions himself to great effect. In verse 12, he said, um, how does some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So he confronts them head on with their error by means of this question. They're denying the resurrection, even though Paul had proclaimed that resurrection was central to the plan of Christianity, the whole point of it. But the resurrection deniers did not give up easily, they, by these questions, were, are indicated here to have continued to kind of hammer away at Paul in this doc, doctrine of the resurrection. Now, when I read the question the first way, I kind of read it with an innocent tone of voice. I you know, wonder, how, how are dead people raised and what body do they get when they're, when they're raised up? And that would indicate a sincere desire to know information. But that's not the case actually here. So you might read this passage with the innocent tone in your voice, in your mind's voice when you read it, and then you have misread it. Because I think that Paul is quoting mockers who are saying, how can there be a resurrection? Okay, Paul, let's assume there's a resurrection. How does that happen? because we know science says that can't happen. And by the way, what kind of body are you going to get, Paul, when you get raised from the dead? So if you read with an honest mind, wanting to know more about the resurrection body, and you impute that mindset to the people that Paul is quoting, then you kind of miss a little bit of the color to this passage. So don't impute that honest mindset in this case, because you'll miss something of the situation. It's not bad that you read it honestly. I want you to read honestly. You know what I'm saying? But you got to realize, could I say you need to be a little more cynical? (laughs) Like Read it with the the way that these people are are attacking Paul realistically. And so you, you ask the question rhetorically or sarcastically, that is to make a point. And the point is the false teachers are making a mockery of the Christian view. The opponents say, in effect, okay, Paul, although we don't believe in the resurrection, let's run with it for a minute. So just how are the dead raised up? You can almost hear the whiny mockery in their questioning voice. They continue, what body will the dead get? They think it's so ridiculous that people will rise from the dead that they ask, how and what? We know this is mockery because Paul addresses them in verse 36. You see the first word in 36? Foolish, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives uh, it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. for One star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man." All right, so foolish one, that gives us a clue here that the question is to be read as a mocking question, not as an honest question. So first of all, Paul assumes that the resurrection is true. That's the controlling teaching here in the passage. And he does, the, the, the people ask two questions. You notice those two questions? How and with what body? And I, I kind of take the how as a mechanism question. How does it actually work? And I, based on that interpretation or that approach, I think Paul does not really answer the question. He doesn't have to answer just like, you know, you don't have to answer every question that's posed to you. Jesus didn't answer every question that was posed to him, did he? Some questions were out of place or dumb questions in a sense, even though sometimes we say there are no dumb questions. That is dumb, honest questions, okay? There are some questions that are, that are out of place. But I think we can just simply say this, that the, the how of the resurrection is it's a miracle. It's a miracle. So how are you going to explain a miracle? You know, write down the scientific chemistry formulas and all that sort of thing? No, you're not. It's a miracle. It doesn't work like naturalistic science. So Paul focuses on the second question, the nature of the resurrection body. What is it like? How does it look? How does it operate or what's it made of? And so that's what he's going to focus on, 36 to 41. Notice that he gives uh, three illustrations from nature. And these are amazing illustrations. In 36 and 37, he talks about a seed or a grain. The resurrection body is like what happens with a plant or fruit, which is different from the seed that you planted in the ground. Obviously, an allusion to the fact that we are planted in the ground when we die. We're buried. But think of yourself. Well, think of... a. Think of an agricultural example. You've all planted seeds, I presume, from tiny little grass seeds to bean seeds to maybe you've planted, um, I don't know, asparagus seeds, you know, and they're little little round seed pods. It's not just the seed. The seed is the black thing inside of it. Or uh, corn. Think of that. Your body, this, is like that. Now the seed looks kind of dry, doesn't it? Often dry, or uh, you know, it's kind of dead-looking. There's not much going on there. But if you look carefully, you'll see there is there is something going on there. But when you plant it into the ground, out comes something out of the ground, which is different than the seed, and it's lively, and it's a plant or a tree or a bush. And it has its own fruit uh, encoded into it, and it produces that. It looks much different than what it went into the ground like. And so it's, it's connected to it organically. It's not the same thing, but it is the same thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, it's related to it. So you think of your body, as wonderful and marvelous as it is, as a seed, and when it dies and it, you know, is buried, and it comes up in resurrection, it's going to be to your seed body like a plant is to its seed. Like, can you just think about, if you you were a seed, how much better the resurrection body is going to be? How much more vibrant, if you're just a, a little pod, of, of uh, stuff that's going to turn into something else by God's power, miraculous power, and resurrection. So there's the illustration from agriculture, and then there is the uh, idea of flesh, or the the, the uh, illustration from nature of the flesh. Look at verse thirty-nine: All flesh is not the same, but there's one of men and animals, fish, birds, and so he gives it, you know, different illustrations of what our flesh, the different kinds of flesh are, just like there are differences between us and, you know, worms. That's a kind of flesh. Or us and birds or cattle or whatever. There's similarities, of course, but there are differences. So the body that he's talking about is going gonna, is gonna to be a fleshly body, I think is the indication here. The resurrection body is like these other bodies in that it's going to have some kind of flesh to it. It's going to have some kind of substance to it, just like the other, all the other uh, birds and, and animals and people and things of that nature. So there, there's a type of flesh to it. I'll, I'll allude to that again here in a moment. And then he says the resurrection body is its own unique kind of thing. Verse 40, there are celestial bodies, terrestrial glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. Then he gives some uh, you know, uh, kind of cosmic or uh, astronomical uh, examples, the sun, the moon, the stars. And they all differ from one another in glory. What is, what is glory? Each has its own kind of majesty or honor or appearance or radiance or splendor. It appears differently. You know what I mean by this if you think, if you look at, at, at the moon on a clear night when it's a full moon and you can see the brightness of it and you say, wow. Have you ever said that before? Like, that's pretty cool. That's the glory of the moon having an impact upon your mind and emotions. But then if you look at the sun as it's setting over an ocean in the west, like uh, you know, in the Pacific Ocean or the Mediterranean Sea, I've seen those sights, beautiful sights. You say, "Wow, that's glory." And then, when you go out late at night in a place that's far away from the light pollution of the city, and you look up and you see the stars, like, "Wow, that's amazing." That's the glory that God has put in those stars. They are they are manifesting the glory of their Creator. Uh, glory is not exactly the same as light. But they are connected, I think, the brightness of the glory of those things. And each one is, is different, but you know, you don't sit there and kind of compare and say, well, the, the stars," because the, they're kind of a different thing. Stars are different than the moon and different than the sun. Of course, we know the sun is a star, but it's a little different because it's so bold and big and bright in our sky compared to the other stars that are so far away. And so each has its own glory. Its own majesty, its own honor, it's a different type of thing. Its glow, its, it's light, it's resplendent glory. They're in different classes to themselves and we don't really compare them to one another in a kind of you know, head-to-head comparison fashion because we know there are different things. And so it is with the resurrection body. It will have its own glory. You think of that, its own glory then i mean actually you think of the human body right now if you just think of how it is how it operates how we are creatures with a spiritual being how we think plan and and engineer and and create music and you know art and uh, we do projects and we work together and we can be you know do things on our own and we have this you know complicated system that works in us of you know electricity and uh, transference of fluids and pumps and all kinds of things. That's amazing. Our bodies have their own glory. Humanity has its own glory, but there will be yet another kind of glory. And so when you say, well, with what body do they come? Well, in some sense, Paul is saying you're going to have to wait to see how that looks. We don't know exactly, although we know some things about it. You um, know when you go to a zoo and you see an animal that you've never, ever, ever seen before. But I mean, you don't probably sit there and say, hmm, did they just create that? Like, is this a mirage or is this something that's made up or computers, animatronic or something? No, you can tell that it's alive and it has its own body and it has its own kind of glory like that. And it's an amazing thing. So it will be when you experience the resurrection body. You'll recognize it as perfectly sensible. Its features will match precisely the demands of its eternal environment. The glory that it has will be unique to it. That's what the body will be like. Verse 42 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. In the same way, we're talking about bodies, we're talking about glory, we're talking about flesh. It's different, but it's similar. It's different, but we understand it because we've seen all this different variation in God's creation. So it is with the resurrection body. Now then he goes on to a long list in verses 42 to 49 of what transformation is going to occur. You want to know what it's going to look like? I'll tell you what it'll look like. It's sown in corruption, and it's raised in incorruption. Uh, how is a body sown in corruption? Well, I'm, it, it may be kind of hard for us to think about corruption. Like our bodies right now, if we're very healthy, say we're young or middle-aged people and we're very vigorous and all of that. And we said, what does that mean, sown in corruption? I mean, we can see sown in corruption, oh, like with somebody who is very old and has come to the end of their life and their strength has been depleted, their muscle mass is gone, their vigor is finished, their balance is unsteady, and, and you know they fall down all the time and they have to use a walker, they can't just go zoom like we do when we're in good health. And so they are, in a sense, sown in in corruption, their bodies have, have decayed already while alive. It's a sad thing. It's really sad to see a person ravaged by cancer who has just been turned into a shell of their former selves. You can hardly imagine how they could still be alive, and yet they are sometimes. And then, of course, they, their body fails and they leave this life. Sown in corruption, but even the perfect specimen of humanity the perfect specimen of humanity. Think of the, the, the greatest athletes or the greatest uh, physiques, the strongest men who can build, you know, do bodybuilding and all of that. And you think, wow, that doesn't seem like corruption, but it is corruption because they're sinners just like the rest of us. That body is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. Now, we don't dishonor the body. We do honor the body. In fact, that's why we do uh, burial, and we have embalming, and we have funerals, and open caskets, and sometimes closed caskets. But we treat the body with the honor that it's due because it is made in the image of God. But yet that honor is dishonor when it comes to the comparison of what it will be like compared to the heavenly and glorified body. The body is sown in weakness, I've already alluded to that. We're weak, we're sown natural, we, come, we are raised up spiritual. Let me just comment on that. Although the platonic dualistic philosophy of matter is evil and spirit is good is common amongst men, people, it's not very popular with God, um, don't think of yourself when you're raised from the dead as being a spirit in the sense of being without a body. That is false doctrine, okay? A lot of people think that. We're going to leave the body behind. We're going to be, you know, um, you know released from the prison house of our soul, the body, and we'll be free, raised a spiritual body. That's not the reality. When Christ was raised, what kind of body did he have? Was it, was it merely ghostly? Grab a hold, The women grabbed a hold of him by the feet. Thomas, put your hand here. See, it's me. You see, a, a, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like I have, he said. Well, he, he, he just told us right there, flesh and bones. That tells you exactly what we need to know. He did not go to heaven. You know, float up there like a ghost. He went with a human body, a glorified human body, the body that came out of the grave, that came out of the seed, out of the out of being sown, and it was it was uh, germinated and and came to life again, as it were. And so we don't hold the idea that this the body is merely a, a ghostly spirit body. It is a physical body. And by the way, this this is more important than you probably think, you might wonder, why am I saying all this? (laughs) Because people, even today, have fallen into this trap of believing that the body is bad in itself, inherently. They will say things like, we are housed in unredeemed flesh, which is a misunderstanding of the doctrine of flesh. Flesh means, in the Bible, sin nature. It means the tendency towards sin. It doesn't mean the physical stuff of which we're made. This doesn't make me sin. How do I know that? Well, I have two examples. I have three examples. Adam and Eve were in bodies that did not sin initially. Okay? And Jesus Christ lived in a natural human body for 33 years and did not sin that tells you that it's not the stuff of which we're made that makes us a sinner. It's the nature that we have. It's what the Bible says when when Jesus says it's out of the what? Out of where do all the evil things come? Out of the heart. It doesn't mean the um, muscle of the heart. It means out of the inmost being of man. Out of our innermost person our sin comes. It's not just our flesh. Of course, it interacts with our flesh. It uses our flesh to cause us to fall to temptation and so on. But it's not merely that we are flesh. For all eternity, we will exist in in resurrected, glorified, fleshly bodies that are spiritual as well, meaning indwelt by the Holy Spirit, holy. We will dwell like that in fleshly bodies, forever and ever, and will not sin. Now, I look forward to that. But that tells us right there that we do not have to worry ourselves about living in a fleshly body. Paul goes on in verse 45 and says that in in our mortal selves, we're in Adam, we're like him, but we will be in Christ, the life-giving spirit in the future. Verse 46, he says the first, that that is the... uh, sown in corruption, the mortal body, is natural and then the spiritual. Uh, it's earthly. To start, we start out as earthly or dusty. Your body is dust. Okay? The second man is of the Lord from heaven. That's in verse 47. And there are two more. Uh, we're like Adam. We are people of dust. But like Christ, we will be like a heavenly man, a heavenly person. We bore the image of the man of dust, 49 says, and we will then bear the image of the heavenly. So we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Um, Philippians three, if you would turn there, please. Philippians three, the last verse of that chapter, speaks of Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. This is Philippians three twenty-one will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So he's going to change us to make us suitable for a heavenly existence. You are not able to take a heavenly existence right now. Mere flesh and blood like this kind of flesh and blood we have here is not able to inherit the kingdom of God. We must take on another form in order to be in that place, in that state. So Paul's contrasting the seed to the plant, the dust to the heaven, the the glory of the one flesh that we have to the glory, the greater glory of the other flesh that we will get as resurrected Christians. We will be like him. To know uh, to, to, to those, rather, to those who deny the resurrection, none of this is going to be convincing. Remember, I said this morning, you can try to persuade somebody, but if they won't be persuaded, it's, it's not a guaranteed way of, of uh, you know, getting somebody to come to faith in Christ. It just doesn't happen that way. They will discard the entire uh, notion of the resurrection. But at the crux of what it means to be a Christian is to acknowledge the resurrection of Christ and to share with Paul and the faithful Jewish forefathers the hope of the resurrection from the dead. Let me mention these verses again, Acts 23.6. You don't have to turn there, but uh, Paul was in the uh, Sanhedrin and he perceived one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees and he cried out, Men and brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead I am being judged. And then Acts twenty four fifteen, But this I confess uh, that according to the way, I'm reading actually verse 14, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So that's Paul's belief and that's what Paul is preaching to the Corinthians in chapter 15, answering their question with what body do they come. And he really kind of, in a sense, I would say, like puts it to these people who are asking the question. You want to know what it's going to be like? Let me tell you, it's going to be so far beyond what your puny mind is thinking right now and your denials that you need to step back and take a little, think, a little thought about this. So he really, in a sense, just overwhelms them with information here with all of these comparisons and the agricultural comparison and the flesh and the celestial bodies and all of that, the glory, the different glories of them that, that you know, what they're doing is what, what, what body do they come with? They're talking about things they don't know what they're talking about. So they're not supposed to open their big mouth if they don't know very much about the subject on which they are speaking. Now, there are some details left out about the resurrection up to this point. Paul does not explain to us exactly what powers or glories of the new body, what they will be. Uh, He doesn't say that we'll be a certain age. He doesn't say what we will look like or whether we will be recognizable or not. And that question about recognition, by the way, comes up a lot. I get that very frequently. I think there's some, why why would people ask that question? I I wonder if there's some anxiety that you will not be recognizable, or you yourself, or that you won't recognize others. I kind of know that uh, in this life, that Anxiety of not recognizing someone. Have you ever seen somebody after 20 years and you just simply cannot recognize who they are? And you're just mystified. Like, how did that person change to that person, which is the same person, you know, at a reunion or something of that nature? I mean, I, I remember I was at a, uh, actually spoke at a funeral, and I didn't even know who my one of my cousins was because we haven't seen each other for Years I mean, it may have been twenty years since I had seen that cousin now it's been uh seven no let's see let's see uh seventeen years since then, so I might not still recognize her <laughs> at this point. Um, we just weren't close you know and uh and much less uh, that her two younger brothers are are cousins um you know and I, I wonder sometimes if I were to see. You know, the, the people in my high school class, would I recognize half of them? Uh, what, what's, you know, what's it going to be like with, with heaven? I think that the text of Scripture gives us indirect evidence that, yes, we will be recognized or we will recognize others. The disciples somehow knew that Moses and Elijah were on the mount, of course, probably by name, um, but then they recognized them somehow. Uh, the disciples also, and this is perhaps the best example, could recognize Jesus, although with some difficulty. You know, the, the women thought, the one woman thought he was a gardener, and the others, they couldn't recognize him. And the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, their eyes were, were, were held back from you know, knowing who he was. But then, once that moment came in which they sat down and began to eat, then they were like, whoa like we know who this is now. That must have been quite a moment of of recognition. So this is kind of like how difficult it would be to recognize somebody that you haven't seen for a couple of decades or more. If your memory is not super great, uh, or the person has changed their appearance somewhat, or you didn't really know them that well, um, and uh, some of us have better memories like that than others. I don't have a particularly good memory for people that have been gone out of my mind or life for a while, and I can have this this problem where I can't dredge up their name from my memory, and it's kind of embarrassing. But and that's one reason why you want to keep uh, pr- keep praying for people. It, w- it will help you to remember them <laughs> uh, over the long haul. But. Uh, it, it can be a little anxiety-causing, but uh, you know, it's, it's not, it won't be impossible to recognize them. And of course, the differences may be greater than my illustration of you know, a 20-year absence can convey. You know, For instance, you grew up as a child maybe knowing, if you had the blessing of this, knowing your grandmother. Well, the first time you remember knowing your grandma, she was old. And then after that, she was even older. And then she passed away. Well, when you go to heaven, is she going to look like that? Most certainly not. She's not going to look like the you know, decaying version of her 20-year-old self. And she'll look better than her 20-year-old self did, more strong and vigorous and, and all the rest, however that's going to work out, whatever that glory is that Paul's talking about here. So you, you never knew her in your life, is the way that you'll see her in heaven. But I'm sure that introductions will go very quickly and be very joyful, and you don't have to have any anxiety about them, so don't worry about that. Uh, will our body be material? I've already answered that question. Absolutely, yes, it will be a material body. Luke 24, behold my hands and my feet, verse 39 says, and it is I myself. Handle me and see um, another another example of this, although somebody might argue, well, this is pre-resurrection, but you find this in First John chapter one, where John says, "That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, Jesus, both before and after the resurrection, was in a body, in a physical." body. He invited Thomas to touch him. John 20 verse 27. Thomas's hands just didn't pass through him like a you know, Casper the friendly ghost kind of deal. So our future bodies will have physicality to them. So banish the notion from your mind that there's that you're going to be a disembodied spirit in heaven forever that you have to be disembodied to escape sin. That's not what it means to be spiritual. You ever fall into that trap? To be spiritual, you think, means to be bodiless? Not at all. To be spiritual means to be led by the Spirit of God. To be spiritual means to be filled with the Spirit of God. To be spiritual means to be holy. It means to be upright. It means to be following God. That's what spiritual means. It doesn't mean ghostly, as I'm emphasizing over and over again. We don't reside in what's, you know, should be termed unredeemed physical flesh. We are redeemed people, all of us, but yet we have this sin nature, this tendency that hangs on, that is part of us, that's deeper than our flesh because it's out of the heart that evil thoughts and adulteries and all kinds of bad things come. The the idea that flesh is a problem is basic to Gnosticism. We do not believe in that philosophical duality of matter and spirit so the Holy Spirit will raise our bodies. Revelation 8:11. I'm sorry, Revelation I meant Romans 8:11. Let me just read that. Romans. chapter eight, verse number 11. It says this, "But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His spirit, who dwells in you." So he will give life to your mortal body. We live a life now that is in the likeness of that resurrection, Romans 6, 5 says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. But we will have life in total likeness to that resurrection of Jesus later on. But we have to hang on for that. So let me pause there and pray and then we'll be done for the evening. Father, thank you for your kindness in allowing us to look at the word, to look at this section about the resurrection body. And Lord, thank you that Paul has answered it very thoroughly, despite the fact that we sense that the question was a mocking question. Very patiently, although very directly again, Paul answers the question, and for that, we give you thanks so that we might have just a little bit more information about that hope that we hold dear to us, that we will come up with a resurrection body in the future that will be far more glorious than the one that we have now. Thank you for that truth. Help us watch over us. May we uh, hold on to that and, and live like it's true and instead of living in kind of fear and slavery to the things of the world. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. With that, I want to wish you all a good night, both here and online. Thank you for your participation with us today. We trust you've been blessed. And uh, let us know if you have any questions about these or other matters. We'll try to bring those up in future messages and help us to uh, learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Trust God will keep you this week and uh, make you a blessing to one another. Amen. Good night.